When I was in college, back before I ever dreamed I would help people tell their own survival stories at this magazine, I had an incident of my own. I was a newbie climber on spring break in Nevada, and I agreed to go with my friends, who were only a little more experienced than I was, on a multi-pitch route that I frankly had no business being on. To keep a long story short, what should have taken four or five hours took 16, and I spent a chilly night in shorts and a t-shirt out in the desert, several hundred feet up a climb, looking at the lights in the distance of the Las Vegas Strip, certain I would have to be rescued. We were luckier than we deserved and eventually made it to the top of the 800-foot wall where we could hike down the other side. But one truth has stayed with me nearly two decades later. We can push our bodies so much further than we think is possible. We've all heard tales of people who lift cars off children, and it's not that adrenaline makes you stronger. We've always had the strength to lift six or seven times our body weight, but we are evolutionarily programmed to let our fear and pain limit what our bodies can do. Yes, adrenaline really, really helps prime your body and contract your muscles, while also conveniently delaying sensations of pain. But even while exercising, we typically only exert 60% of our muscle mass, meaning physiologically, we are all brimming with unlocked potential. It's been notoriously hard for scientists to study since conditions come about without warning and are not easily replicated. But our life or death scenarios seem to be the key to unlocking that 40%. This could explain what happened to 60-year-old William Tor and Mariella Colvin in our next story. Will and Mariella were on a summer climb in Rocky Mountain National Park. And while their outdoor pursuits on a typical day would earn them respect from outdoor enthusiasts half their age, this past July, they had to find out exactly how strong they actually are. I made a decision to survive. You're in that survival mode. The, the idea of dying wasn't in my head. I knew immediately it was the worst case scenario. I was in a fight for my life situation. Whenever you walk out on these trails, you're in their house. I'm Louisa Albanese, and you're listening to Out Alive by Backpacker. In each episode of this podcast, we'll bring you real stories of real people who survived the unsurvivable. I saw the rope zip through the rappel ring, and I couldn't do anything. Learn what went wrong, what went right, and how you can escape if the worst-case scenario happens to you. There is no way we would find anybody alive. My name is Will Tour. live in Boulder, Colorado. I'm 60 years old, work for the state government as director of the state energy office, working on climate and clean energy policy. And Mariel and I have been climbing and mountaineering together for about 40 years now. My name is Mariella. I am 60 as well, and uh, I teach in the philosophy department at the University of Colorado part-time, so semi-retired. I like to do a lot of outdoor things in my spare time, so snow climbing in particular. The reason I like it is because you do it in the summer and yet you're up in the mountains where it's nice and cool. And I also like it because you go straight up the mountain. When you're hiking on a trail, you're meandering and you're doing switchbacks and with snow climbing, you just go right up. Our plan was to do a moderate mountaineering day in Rocky Mountain National Park. 
where we would start at the Bear Lake Trailhead, hike in about four miles to the bowl on the north face of Flat Top Mountain, where there are these kind of spectacular snow couliars. They're known as the Ptarmigan couliars. You know, it's a couple hour hike in and then probably a couple hours of snow climbing. And then you're basically right below the summit of Flat Top Mountain. So our plan was to have a nice picnic lunch above the snowfield and then hike down the backside on the Flat Top Mountain Trail. The reason we chose this couliar was because we hadn't climbed it before. One of the things I looked for was a long run out. So just in case we fell, I knew that we would not go all the way, or I hoped we would not go all the way to the very bottom and hit those rocks. It looked like a beautiful climb. It didn't look particularly harder than what we had done before. So everything was promising. Rocky Mountain National Park is brimming with hiking trails, alpine climbing objectives, and moderately technical routes like the one Will and Mariella picked out. The term couliar comes from the French word for corridor or passage and is a steep gorge or gully on the side of a mountain. In July, much of the snowpack throughout the park has melted, but a handful of glaciers and snowfields endure through the summer months. And it was a beautiful day. It was warm, you know, it's been a very hot summer. So it was a warm day and we got a relatively a late start because we didn't quite have the oomph to get to the trailhead before 5 a.m. And Rocky Mountain National Park has a timed entry permit system if you come in after 5 a.m. We were hoping to get a 6 a.m., but we didn't. We got an 8 a.m., so we started a little later than we hoped for. We were actually having lunch before the <laughs> climb, or at least a snack. And by the time we got all ready with our crampons on and our ice axes, it was about 11.30, I think. So definitely a later than usual start, but the snow felt solid. Um, it wasn't mushy at all, so we weren't too worried. We started climbing about 11.30 and it was good in the beginning. It actually was good all the way up. We really didn't have snow problems until the very top. It's important to be prepared when climbing a snowfield. Rocky Mountain National Park officials warn that if you climb a snow cool yard midsummer, there is an inherent risk of compromised snowpack. They also say to start early before the sun comes up and to check that overnight temperatures have been consistently below freezing. And then the climb itself was quite beautiful. The Kulyar was pretty deeply inset, so even though it was a warm day, you know, I think it had been in, in shade until pretty recently, that it was perfect for kicking steps with crampons and the lower part of the couliar or really until you're about three quarters of the way up is relatively moderate angle it starts out very low angle gradually gets steeper and so we were just traversing back and forth in the couliar it was evident that there was sometimes rock fall into the couliar but there there was no rock fall that day while we were there and as we got up higher, it got steeper. So I'd say about three quarters of the way up, we stopped on the little ledge and got out our second ice tool so that we each had one ice axe and one shorter ice tool. Will and Mariella weren't tied into a climbing rope as they headed into steeper terrain, but relying on traction from their crampons and ice tools dug into the snow. If they fell, they'd have to use their tools to self-arrest and stop their momentum. And from there, we started heading up 
the final steep section to the top. One of the reasons that we hadn't climbed that couloir before was because it has large cornices. Cornices form on bridges where wind causes snow to build up on an overhanging angle. They can be large and since they're unsupported by rock, can collapse or break off entirely. Usually that's more of a concern for a June climb. And this was July 10th. And there were still cornices on portions of the Collar, but the central part of it, the cornice had melted out. And so that's where we aimed for, was really climbing right underneath the central area where the cornice had melted. And, you know, it got very steep right towards the end, just kind of where the cornice had melted out was actually getting fairly close to vertical for like the last just 15 or 20 feet. I was probably 10 feet ahead of Mariella. I was coming to the top. And so I did the final exit move. And that's whenever kind of all hell broke loose. And you know, I remember just this moment of utter confusion. Wait, what's happening here? I'm done with the climb. How can I be? How can I be falling? I remember hearing Mariella yell, and then I have this very brief memory of, I think, trying to self-arrest, but instead ending up in a tumbling fall that was accelerating and just a sense of, okay, this is it, this is the end. I was a few feet behind him, and all of a sudden I felt something falling on me. And at first I thought Will had fallen and he landed on me, but then I quickly realized as I saw this white stuff hitting me that snow was knocking me over backwards. And I was like, oh no, this is not good. And I started sliding down and because the snow had hit me from the front and knocked me over backwards, my ice axes were essentially useless. I tried to turn around to be on my stomach so that I could use my ice axes correctly, but they were just flailing around and I was sliding down. And so they were more like, I feel like weapons than they were of use, but they flew out of my hands despite the leashes. And so I started sliding down and I was like, okay, what do I do? And I realized I didn't have ice axes to slow me down. I did try to turn around so that my head was above my feet instead of below my feet. and. That was possible, I think, just because I was sliding around every which way. So then I was sliding down basically in a sitting position, although my back was reclined. And I went down, and pretty soon, I don't know whether my crampon hit the snow and flipped me over or whether I hit a rock or what it was, but pretty soon I was rolling like kids roll down a grass hill. I was just rolling and rolling. A little bit further down, I started tumbling, basically like somersaulting down. And the whole time I was wondering what was going on with Will. I heard him scream too, so I assumed he was doing the same thing. At one point, hit something hard. I assume it was a rock. And I hit it with my chest right in the front. And it just knocked the breath out of me and I just went, oof. And at that point I thought, that was not good. <laughs> this is really not good. Whereas before I had some hope that I would gain control eventually and make it down okay. So as the slope got much gentler, I slowed. And at one point I was going slow enough that I put my feet and my crampons down to slow me even more, which is not actually a smart thing to do because that's an easy way to break your ankles. 
and to start be flipped again. But the snow was soft enough and I was going slow enough that the crampons just sliced through the snow instead of making me flip over. And so I did come to a stop, I don't know, about 15 or 20 feet after I had slowed enough to put my feet down. Then I looked and I saw Will coming. And fortunately, maybe because we were so close to each other at the top, he ended up stopped very close to me, literally like five, 10 feet away. I scooched across the snow over to him and he was quite disoriented at first. Park officials suspect the cornice likely hadn't melted out as much as Will and Mariella had hoped. And when Will weighted the cornice, it likely collapsed beneath him, causing them to fall. They had fallen 900 feet. Though conscious, Will was confused. To this day, months later, he has no memory of the fall or the moment immediately after. I did a quick assessment of myself in a very primitive way. I was most concerned about my head since I knew that my head had hit a rock. I was aware of that, that it hit it pretty hard, but I still felt like I was thinking okay. I never lost consciousness. So I started asking myself little arithmetic questions like, what is 72 plus 41? Just random things like that and doing the little calculation in my head and say, that sounds right. I think my head is okay. And then after I saddled over to Will, he was just asking me, where am I? What happened? And I said, we fell down the slope. And he said, where am I? What happened? He probably repeated that about five or six times. So then I got really concerned that he had gotten a big concussion because he didn't seem to be aware of things really. So I thought I'm gonna have to walk out because my legs were fine. I realized that all my impacts were above my waist. Uh, We both had our packs because we were wearing them and I got out my fleece and I told Will to wear it because uh, Will was saying, my leg is hurt, my leg is hurt. I think I broke my leg. So at that point he was making sense. And I said, Will, we have to get you off the snow because I was worried about hypothermia. And he said, I can't, I broke my femur. I was thinking whether or not I could very gently slide him down to the bottom of the slope so that he could get on the rocks. And I thought with a broken femur, I better not try, which turned out to be a very good decision because I think if I had tried to actually pull him down, I would have really messed up his femur. So instead, I gave him my fleece and my gloves and my hat and told him to try to stay warm and reassured him that I was going off for help and just started walking. As Mariella walked away, and at that point, I was pretty warmly dressed. I had on you know, two sweaters and a raincoat and gloves. And I didn't put the hat on because I still had my helmet on. And I saw Mariella walking away. We didn't have any cells service and there didn't seem to be anyone else around. And I didn't realize how badly she was hurt. I saw her walking and she was picking her way carefully but seemed to be doing fine. And then I almost immediately began to get cold. Despite the, those warm clothes, I was lying on the snow. That long fall had gotten everything wet from the surface of the snow, so I was wet. And even though it was sunny, I was lying on very cold snow. And I was also just beginning to, I think, be more rational and started thinking, okay, I should be trying to get help too. So I just started the, this routine where every 10 minutes, 
I would blow on my whistle because I had a whistle on the outside of my pack. I would blow on the whistle, I would call for help, and I would take a sip of water. And that went on for about two hours. And I just was getting colder and colder. And by the end of it, I was pretty much into like continuous shivering. And that's the sort of place where I really began to have doubts. I felt, okay, I'm not going to make it because I, this is just heading into sort of really bad hypothermia. It, it was interesting because I would have expected to have really panicky thoughts at that point, but I didn't. And instead, I just had this real sense of sadness that was really around my family and the idea that I would be leaving Mariella and our children, Nikki and Misha. It was just a really sad time then. After about two hours, I look and there are two people who are approaching me and that was just an incredibly welcome sight. Two climbers in the area heard Will's call for help and immediately started making their way down towards him, but the going was slow and it took them several hours. Once the climbers reached Will, they began using their experience as certified wilderness first responders to do what they could to make Will more comfortable. They also had a GPS device and were able to initiate an SOS alerting park officials. My name is Mike Lukens. I am the Wilderness Branch Supervisor, so I supervise both the Climbing Ranger Program and the Wilderness Rangers here at Rocky Mountain National Park. The call initially came into our dispatch center just around 3.45, and then we sent folks out the door pretty quickly after that. We had a paramedic and then two of our climbing rangers, just based on the known terrain, head out the door to try and access the patient. Initially, we had that spot activation for one individual, and that activation came in from some bystander. I'm not 100% sure they were even aware that Williams wife was with him at the time and that wasn't relayed to us initially so as part of our planning efforts we knew that William was in a pretty steep area sounded like he had some pretty significant injuries we started exploring other options for evacuation even before we got park rangers on scene and for us when it comes to mountain terrain and steep terrain it makes evacuation hard by ground we look at helicopters and aerial assets. And for us, the only real option currently is the National Guard with the hoist program. So I gave a, a quick call to talk to him a bit about what we had going on, the location and coordinates, and what we thought we needed. While Will was in the capable hands of the climbers with search and rescue on the way, Mariella was still off trail trying to locate help. Meanwhile, I, as I was walking, down, picking my way over these rocks. I saw Lake Helene, which was the way we came up, but then I also saw Odessa Lake, which is much easier to go in the direction of Odessa Lake. There was a lot less brush and rocks. At some point, I realized that it was a good decision because there was more likely to be a campground at Odessa Lake because it was a much bigger lake. So I started heading down there and um, said picking my way over logs and around a bunch of bushes and over streams. It was really very thick brush, and so it was the going was very slow. I was pretty sure at that point that I was not going to die unless I couldn't get to the lake in time and just like collapse somewhere in the middle of the underbrush, and then I thought nobody will find me. And I was also fairly calm 
mentally. I started to think about what ifs. What if Will dies? What if I die? What about our children? And our children are 19 and 24. And so I was like, okay, they've pretty much launched. <laughs> they don't need me desperately. So that was reassuring. But still, I was like, I have to get out for Will before he gets hypothermia. So that kept me going, even though I was very tired. I would say I was almost more tired than in pain. I kept going and at one point I came to this beautiful spot and I really appreciated it. I thought, you know, if this is the last thing I see, it is just beautiful. It had a waterfall, it had really green meadow where I expected to see a moose, but there was no moose, which was probably good. And there were wildflowers everywhere, butterflies. It was really a little paradise. And I plan when I'm all recovered to try to find that spot again. So I thought I'll just lay down and take a little nap here. So I lay down, but that was so uncomfortable that I just got back up again and thought, no, and I need to keep going. But I found that trying to identify wildflowers really helped me keep my mind in the present and not wander off into these what ifs. It felt like a long way. It turned out it was only about a mile and a half, I think. But at one point just saying, okay, I'm gonna make it to the next tree down there. And just picking out features and saying, I'm gonna make it that far and not committing to making it any farther than that. And eventually I got down to Odessa Lake and uh, there was no campground there, at least not at the end of the lake where I was. And so I was like, oh damn. And I was yelling help the whole time I was going down. So I thought I would just lay down there and yell. And I thought my voice will carry across the lake and maybe somebody will hear it. My name is Jennifer Perlow. Um, I live in Conifer, Colorado. My husband and I are big hikers and campers. We had reservations for Rocky Mountain National Park. And so we got up early and drove out to the park had our backpacks packed for a night of camping. We're heading to Lake Odessa, which is beautiful. And what we really love about it is there's only two spots for camping there. So it's usually pretty quiet. So we're looking forward to a very relaxing, kind of romantic <laughs> camping trip. And so about three-fourths of the way in, there's a place called Lunch Rock, and you can hike up a little bit, and it overlooks Lake Helene and Lake Odessa. We're sitting up there, and we're finishing up our lunch, and we're packing up our backpacks, and all of a sudden I thought, did you hear that? And my husband, Chris, says, what? I said, I think I just heard somebody call for help. We'll be right back. It had been five hours since Will and Mariella fell. A third climber joined the first two climbers in caring for Will until more help could arrive. An extra set of hands allowed the trio to gently move Will off the snow into a trench they dug with crampons and lined with packs. About an hour after the climbers reached Will, the Park Service Hasty team arrived as well. So our park rangers, the three that were out on, went out the door. They got on scene, oh, somewhere around 15 to 20 minutes prior to the actual hoist aircraft showing up. Realized pretty quickly that William had a femur fracture and that he needed more than just basic medical care. So we did have a paramedic on scene, was able to start an IV, give some medications, and then get a femur traction device in place. And then he was quickly packaged and hoisted from the location. 
They ended up getting a big Black Hawk helicopter from the National Guard up at Buckley Air Force Base came in. And I think it was a pretty difficult piloting, very skilled helicopter work because, you know, we're very near the cliffs. I'm still on sloping snow right at the bottom of the couloir where it comes out into a sort of larger open snow field. Then I heard helicopters overhead and I was like, oh, thank God they're going for Will because I knew that he was the more urgent situation with hypothermia. And that really helped me feel better but the helicopter seemed to be flying around, like it came around in a circle. And I was like, what the hell, can't they find him? He's like the one black spot on this white <laughs> glacier. So then I started getting worried because it circled around about two times and I thought, uh-oh. And then it came close to me and I got up and I started waving my hands and not jumping up and down, but like trying to be as visible as possible. And the helicopter came near me, its nose bent down, and I swear it looked at me, and I thought, okay. And then it flew away, and I again felt sort of despair. I was like, what? why isn't it picking me up? I didn't give up, but I gave up walking, and I just lay down. And it was kind of gusty winds at that point, so they flew around a few times, I think, to get a feel for the winds. And then they dropped a rescuer and a litter. And at that point came what for me was the most painful part of the ordeal, which was they had to wrestle me into the litter. And even with the painkillers, that was definitely the most painful thing. Then the helicopter came back and they dropped a cable and kind of had a, there was a big loop on the, a big ring on the litter and they just used a big carabiner to attached the litter and attached the rescuer, and they just started pulling me up. That also was, in some ways, the worst part of this. I imagined it would be like this spectacular view being raised on a helicopter between the wind and then the rotor wash. It's both incredibly loud and windy, but the litter is just spinning in a circle like a top. Just my entire being was focused on not, <laughs> not throwing up. We pulled in and you sat down at the edge of the park to transfer me to medevac helicopter. And at the point where I was allowed to sit up, I'm afraid I just covered everything around me, which I'm sorry to the rescuers, but I felt much better after that. Pretty quickly got me to the emergency room at the hospital and, you know, just have intermittent memories after that. I opened my eyes and there was a man standing over me with his son and I just thought oh thank god and he said are you all right and I said not really and he said there's a campground at the other end of the lake and I thought oh good and he said he would help me there and he gave me one of his walking poles and helped me on this pretty rough path that I hadn't even seen that went around the lake a man and his teenage son happened upon Mariella while walking around Odessa Lake. He saw that she was injured and knew there were campers on the other side of the lake, so he helped Mariella down the rugged path while his son ran ahead to a ranger station. We set up camp and we're sitting by the lake and just, you know, hanging out and battling mosquitoes and enjoying the view. And a hiker walks up and he has a woman with him she was guarding her wrist 
and had abrasions on her face and was just in general disheveled and clearly, I think, in shock. And so it was a father and I think his 13-year-old son and his son was running to the ranger station to see if anybody was there, which no one was, but that's, that's who had run by. I think I was re-energized by seeing him. As I mentioned before, my main feeling was just exhaustion. So we got to the campground and somebody brought me a chair and a warm blanket and I thought, I'm gonna need more than this. And I was like, is there anywhere I can lie down? And this woman came up and she said, I have two tents. Funny story, we always camp in two separate tents when we camp because my husband makes too much noise in his sleep and I don't get to sleep. So we had two tents set up for the two of us. And so we set up Mariella in my tent. I was like, oh, thank God. And so I walked to the tent and I got in it by myself and she had this wonderful air mattress. It wasn't like a thin thermarest or anything. Not that I have anything against thermarests, I have one. But she had one of those like blow up four inch, really comfortable pads. And so I lay down on that and it was just heaven. And then she brought me a sleeping bag she was cold and you know probably a little dehydrated and you know obviously in a lot of pain and so we just laid her down and got her warm and um you know gave her water and she wanted some food so we gave her some food and as much ibuprofen as i thought was medically safe for her to have so we called sos our companion camper also had a satellite phone so everybody just called sos right away they were like, oh, we already have a rescue in progress. I'm like, no, no, it's different. This is a different person. We have the wife. And then just waited until rescue came. Um, and it was quite some time. But eventually, um, rescue people came. And in that time, you know, she really wanted to go to sleep. But I was a little afraid she might have a concussion. So we didn't let her go to sleep, which I'm sure was super annoying. I don't really remember how much time passed. I'm sure it was an hour um, at least when the Park Service EMTs arrived and they immediately checked my vitals. They confirmed that my wrist was probably broken and put it in a splint, which really helped a lot. They did a quick assessment, determined she was stable, but yes, she had some pretty serious injuries and that she could make it through the night, allow us to do evacuation in the morning. Uh, so they spent the night with her, provided advanced life support or ALS care, same thing, IVs and medications and other things, mobilization due to some mid-spine pain. She did have a head injury. She cracked her helmet. So that's always of concern for us. I knew that Mariella wasn't gonna be there that night. At that point, I still didn't realize how badly she was hurt because they were still talking about how, hey, there's rangers with her and she'll probably walk out tomorrow. I don't think they'd yet realized how seriously she was injured. I think the fact that she'd been able to hike out made them think she wasn't as badly hurt. And then they were going to give me fentanyl. And I had remembered that the dose, the therapeutic dose for fentanyl was very close to the lethal dose. So I was a little reluctant. I was like, oh, you know, what if they don't measure quite right? So they gave me something else instead, probably morphine, I don't remember. And then next time they checked on me, I just said, give me the fentanyl. So they did, and that was great. And I was able to sleep on and off. 
once the rangers showed up you know we just kind of backed off and let them do what they were going to do and you know we would just hear bits and pieces but you know at one point i think she said something about i think we fell 600 feet and i was like you fell 600 feet like that's craziness and then it turns out it was way more than 600 feet but i mean the fact that they are alive is incredible and then you know she was just really worried about her husband she just wanted to know if he was okay if they'd gotten to him if he was off safely and i think that was her biggest concern did discover some things like i had this really deep cut between my thumb and my forefinger and my left hand that I think came either from crampons or ice axe. That was like the deepest cut I've ever had. And under other circumstances, you know, I'd probably look at that and just freak out thinking, you know, here's the emergency. I didn't even notice I had it with everything else going on until we were in the ER and they were sewing it up. And the ER doc who was doing the stitches on it was a climber who was very interested in talking about the accident and finding out what happened and so described some of that. My son is an emergency room nurse and who was working night shift at that time and so he had gotten a call from the park service that didn't go directly to him because he was he was working but he got the message and the message was clear that people were with uh, Mariella but while it talked about me being pulled out by a helicopter, apparently he wasn't quite clear whether I was alive or dead. And so he was very shaken by that. And when he called back and determined that I was alive, he was able to get a managing nurse to take over for him and, and come up. And he just walked in and it was just like this wave of love from him. It was just, a, that was a wonderful thing. So I spent the night there and then uh, woke up a little bit before eight and asked, what am I, how am I getting out? And they said, well, do you think you can walk out first? And I said, no, I really don't think I can. And they, they thought that I might have a back injury. So they said, well, we're gonna have to do a litter. By the next morning, started getting all these calls from the park service. They were great about staying in really close contact and letting me know what was happening with Mariella. By then, we were clear that she was significantly more injured, but explained that there was gonna be like a litter rescue and they would helicopter her out later in the day. So I was back in the tent and lying down and just waiting essentially for a litter to arrive. And when it did, there were a ton of people According to the Park Service, there were 45 people involved in both rescues from five separate organizations, including Rocky Mountain National Park Search and Rescue, Northern Colorado Med Evac, Rocky Mountain Rescue Group, Colorado National Guard, and Larimer County Search and Rescue. And the helicopter ride was not like Will's. It was the next day, it was calm, it seemed very straightforward. And it was like, okay, everything's fine now. One of the nurses in the helicopter said, it's too bad you can't see the view. Uh, it's a wonderful view. They were reassuring, and I was just feeling waves of relief, essentially. When I got there, they wheeled me away for x-rays and came back and said, you have nine broken ribs, three fractured vertebrae, broken wrist, and a broken sternum. And I had figured out the broken sternum because that was what was hurting the most. I was surprised to hear about the vertebrae and thought, 
wow, I'm incredibly lucky that didn't sever my spinal cord. So all the way through the, the ordeal, I was mostly feeling lucky rather than terrified. They told me that they expected a full recovery, which surprised me. I thought this is going to do something more serious. That was again, another wave of relief. Here's Mike Lukens from Rocky Mountain National Park again. They both fell almost the entire length of the couloir, so somewhere around 900 feet. It could have turned out either way. We've definitely had falls that are much shorter distances in snow where people have not survived. So I would say one, it's, it is somewhat, or very lucky on both ends that they both survived. I wouldn't say that it's normal for someone to survive that type of fall. The only saving grace is that it was on snow. It was probably somewhat warm in the afternoon and a bit stickier. And so maybe that slowed their descent speed. Also, the fact that they didn't bounce and hit rocks or hit their heads in a more significant manner is also very lucky. It's not unheard of, and we've had lots of people fall down similar snow slopes and unfortunately not survive the fall. I have to say that I feel like I was even luckier than Will because he had to sit there and get colder and I was walking out, so I had a purpose. I had a, a goal and that kept me going and kept me thinking about that rather than just how cold I was. I had thought about staying with him and us just waiting to be rescued, but I'm glad that I didn't do that because I don't do well with cold. I'm still in awe that you were able to do that hike out, knowing now the injuries that you had. We've heard from a lot of folks, and it ranges from she's one tough MF to uh, a lot of insults to her bottom, because we hear that she's a badass. <laughs> This episode of Out Alive was produced and written by me, Louisa Albanese, along with Zoe Gates. Scoring and sound design was by Jason Patton. Thank you to Will Tor and Mariella Colvin, Mark Lukens, and Jennifer Perlow for sharing your stories with us. And if you have a backcountry survival story and you're interested in sharing, you can email me at outalive at outsideinc.com. This season of Out Alive is brought to you by Ricola. Out Alive is made possible by members of Outside Plus. Learn more about all the benefits of membership at outsideonline.com slash pod plus. Now is a great time to join. We're offering new members a 50% discount for a limited time. 